mind, if you will. Today, we're going to be continuing uh, in our series, The Business of Living. Uh, and uh, the, the subject this morning is this, first things first. It's about managing your spiritual life. You know, this series has been about how we can manage the various aspects of our life, our, our relationships. That'll be next Sunday, by the way. Our goals, our career, our finances, and those kinds of things. And we call that stewardship or the management of our life. And specifically, stewardship is this. Stewardship is the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to our care. Uh, everything that we are and everything that we have belongs to God. Nothing is, belongs to us, not even our bodies themselves. All, it all belongs to God, and, and he has loaned it to us, our loved ones, our jobs, everything we have to be managed for him. The key to all this, what we're going to be talking about this morning, the key is to put Christ at the center of our lives, depending on him in every detail. The more, and by the way, none of us is 100% at that. Uh, we, we all are better and worse, better and worse at different times. The more we can do this, the more happiness, the more joy, the more peace, the more contentment uh, in our lives. The less we do that and we kind of start depending on ourselves, the less joy, the less peace, the less contentment in our lives we ebb and flow, we'd all have to acknowledge that, that we're not just on an even plane or going up all the time. We ebb and flow in those things. We're going to start today with a passage of scripture in a book in the New Testament called Philippians. Now, Philippians is actually a letter written by the apostle Paul to the church in the northern Greek city known as Philippi. When Paul wrote this, he was in jail. And uh, we're pretty sure that he was in prison in Rome. Leading up to this time, Paul had been in jail for years. He spent two years in prison in Israel. And then he was transported and got shipwrecked and all kinds of things happened. But he finally made it to Rome where he would appeal to Caesar because uh, Paul was a Roman citizen. And so after two years in prison and, and perilous times traveling, he had spent an unknown amount of time in prison uh, in Rome. And he writes this letter to the church at Philippi. And, and this letter is, is, is a letter about living for Jesus regardless of the circumstances. You know, we also uh, think about our circumstances and I can do things and I can't do other things. But this letter is about regardless of our circumstances, we can serve Jesus. It's a book about or a letter about joy. 17 times in the book, the word joy or rejoice is used. And it's a book about contentment, chapter four, which we're not gonna read today, but chapter four is, is about being content in Jesus. But what we're gonna do leading up to one particular verse uh, is begin in Philippians chapter one and verse 12, where scripture says this. Paul is writing, remember, to this church. I want you to know, brethren, brothers and sisters, specifically you Christians in Philippi, you Christians that make up the church in Philippi, I want you to know that the things which have happened to me, what things that happened to him? He got arrested. You know, he spent two years in jail. He was shipwrecked. All kinds of stuff happened to him. Now he's in jail in Rome. The things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Kind of interesting. A guy who had been through that kind of stuff. You think you got troubles, you know? Here's a guy that had all kinds 
of troubles. And he said, you know what? Uh, uh, maybe this isn't what I would have chosen for my life, but it's all happened for the honor and glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel. Paul's life was all about the fact that Jesus died on the cross for people. And he wanted everybody to know that and everybody who would to trust Christ as their savior. So he says it's all happened for the furtherance of the gospel. Verse 13, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard that all these these, uh, uh, soldiers that guard me, these soldiers that guard uh, the emperor himself, uh, it's evident to them and to all the rest, everybody else around here that my chains are in Christ. Everybody knows why I'm here. Everybody knows that I'm here because I stand for Christ. I haven't broken any laws. I haven't done any bad things. I haven't hurt anybody. I haven't stolen from anybody, taken anything that's not my own, but I'm here because of the stand that I take for Jesus Christ. And verse 14 says, most of the brethren in the Lord, most of these other guys outside here have become confident by my change because of the fact that I'm standing for God in prison, they are becoming more confident and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul says, yeah, it's bad. Yeah, I broke my shoulder, but good things are coming from it, right? Paul's saying, yeah, I've been in prison. I've been shipwrecked, got bit by a snake uh, in the process, by the way. Uh, All these things happened to me, but good things are happening as well. Uh, Verse 14, uh, people are boldly now talking about Jesus where they wouldn't do it before. Some... This is unfortunate, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. Can you imagine Christians doing that? But we Christians, you know, we're kind of like everybody else in a lot of ways, unfortunately. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife for the wrong reasons. Some also from goodwill, some for the right reasons. The former, verse 16, those those people that preach it from envy and strife, The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, not in truth, supporting, supposing to add to my change, affliction to my change. He says, some people are doing this just because they don't like me and they want to hurt me even more. So they're talking about Jesus. It's a group of Christians, people who call themselves Christians that were making everything about themselves. You know, it's all about me and who I like and who I don't like and all that kind of stuff. But verse 17, he says, the latter this group that does it for the right reasons, they're the latter preaching the gospel out of love, knowing that I am appointed to the defense of the gospel. And so he says, there's some preaching for the right reason or some preaching for the wrong reason that's all going on here. And, and he begins verse 18 with, these, with this question, what then? What then? And that means something like, How's, so what should I think? How does this affect me? What does this mean to me? What, what matters? Does it, what matters? And then he get, tells us what does matter. Only that in every way, he says, here's all I care about. Only that in every way, whether in pretense, that is falsely, or in truth, Christ is preached. He said, here's what I, it's not about my comfort. It's not about uh, me getting uh, famous and everybody patting me on the back. It's not about that. Here's what I care about. Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Uh, God's being glorified. Christ is being preached. I will rejoice. I'm rejoicing in that. And and I'm going to keep on. I don't care what happens to me. I'm going to keep on rejoicing in that. Verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance 
though your, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think Paul knew he's going to get out of prison or not going to get out of prison at this point in time. That word deliverance, there's also the same word translated salvation somewhere. You know, salvation could be physical. When Peter was walking on the water and began to sink, he said, Lord, save me. He didn't want to drown. And God, Jesus reached out uh, and pulled him up. So it could mean physical salvation, deliverance from all kinds of things. It could be spiritual salvation. He says this, because you're praying for me and because the Holy Spirit of God is present with me, I'm a winner. I'm coming out of this. I may die, I may live, but nobody can hurt me. You know, it's hard to beat a guy that won't get, just won't admit defeat. He just gets up and keeps going and gets up and keeps going. And Paul said, I'm a winner here. Uh, uh, If I get out of jail, if I don't get out of jail, if I live or if I die, I'm a winner. Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation, or I fully expect, I uh, earnestly expect and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. That is, no matter what happens, I'm not going to be ashamed in Jesus. But with all boldness, this seems to be, uh, shame is on one side. The other side seems to be with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or whether by death. It's not whether I live or die that counts. That's not the important thing, whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead. I don't know about you. I kind of like being alive at this point in my life. Some point in time, I may not, may not be so important to me, but right now, kind of glad to be alive. But here's what he's leading up to. And, and the verse I want you to take home with you today, which is this, verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To me, to live is Christ. The purpose of my existence is to honor Christ, not to make a living, not to have fun uh, or anything. Making a living is pretty important. Having fun, something God wants us to do. But that's not the purpose of my existence on this planet. My main purpose is to glorify Christ so that others will see Christ in me. Christ is the essence of my life. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, What he means by that is, if I die in this prison, if I'm executed, and eventually he was, if if I'm executed, it will bring honor and glory to Christ, and I get to go to heaven. You know, you can't beat me. I said, uh, he said, I I make it. It's win-win for me, no matter what happens. The Apostle Paul, I mean, he's he's in jail. He's been in jail for years, uh, and yet he's saying it's win-win for me, no matter what happens. Keep that in mind, for to me, Here's what my life is about. To me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And by the way, a couple of verses on down, in the 27th verse, he said something else that's his main concern here. He says, my concern is not my own life only. He said, here's what I'm concerned about. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He said, I'm not concerned about my life and what's going to happen to me. I just want Christ to be glorified. Here's what I am concerned about. Only let your conduct, let the way you live your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I think he could be speaking that to us today, right? No matter what happens, here's what I'm concerned about, Paul says. Let your conduct, milestone, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what life is all about. There's a lot of things that distract us in this life. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain, Paul said. I want that to be true of you as well. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We serve a God of grace and love. 
He is out to help us and not to harm us no matter what happens in life. That's what God wants for us. But we have to understand that, that we're talking about management of different areas of our life. When we mismanage areas of our life, there are consequences to that. Even though this God that we serve wants the best for us. We talked about managing and mismanaging money. When you mismanage money, it creates stress, the stress of debt or just the loss of contentment because all you can think about money. Mismanaging relationships, we'll talk about this next week, wrecks marriages and destroys friendships. Mismanaging a career could result in 40 years of unhappy, unproductive, unproductive unfulfilled living. These are terrible things, but mismanaging your soul, mismanaging your spiritual life has the worst consequences, the direst consequences of all. That's why Jesus said this in Matthew 16, 26. He said, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world, if he got everything, money, fame, power, luxury, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Now, that does not necessarily talking about going to hell. He's talking to his guys here, his disciples, his followers. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? But what, what good is it if you get everything that people are after in the world today and yet your life is just a mess? Uh, and yet your life is meaningless. There are eternal blessings we're properly managing our spiritual life. The overriding principle of this, of course, is to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. The overriding uh, principle is, is that you go to, you're going to heaven when you die, not because of your goodness, but because of Jesus in your life. Now, today, we're going to get beyond that principle. We're going to look at five things you can do to strengthen your spiritual life, five habits of the spiritual life, five basics. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of us watched some football yesterday, and... Um, if a football team is good at the basics, uh, they're going to win some games. If they don't tackle, they're probably not going to win. If they, they can't run and pass and ca you know all that kind of stuff, they're probably not going to win any games. Managing your spiritual life is the same way. If you're good at the basics, other things will come. And it doesn't make any difference if you're a big-name person or a no-name person. So briefly, we're going to look at five things you can do to strengthen your spiritual life, and they are simple as pie. Anybody can understand these. You might not like them all, but anybody can understand these. And some of them you say, I got that one, I got that one. Here's the first one. Five things you can do to strengthen your spiritual life. First one is pray. Prayer. Prayer is not difficult but it's essential. Prayer is something we don't do a lot of times. You know, we think we do, but we're not. We haven't really think, well, it's been days since I talked to God. Uh, or he's been with me all the time. Here's what prayer is. Prayer is simply talking to God. That's all prayer is. In fact, the Christian life begins with prayer, doesn't it? The Christian life begins with a person talking to God and saying, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and, and, and I can't do anything myself and in my own self change that. Thank you for dying on the cross. You did it. Thank you for dying on the cross to pay the price of my sin. I believe that. I opened the door, asked you to take me into your family, make me who you want me to be. Prayer is an incredible privilege. Imagine 
that you can talk to the creator of the universe anytime you want to. And he's promised to listen to what you have to say. You can talk to a lot of people. They don't hear what you're saying, even if they're in the same room with you. The Bible tells us about Jesus praying. You know, he's our example in everything. He was all God and all man. Uh, and he had to go to God in prayer regularly. And in uh, Mark 135, the Bible describes Jesus like this. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, gives you the idea everybody else was still snoozing, right? But Jesus is awake. He went out and departed to a solitary place, a place where, there was, where he could be alone. And there he prayed. And that wasn't an isolated incident because Luke, 15, 6, Luke 5, 16 says this. So he himself often, he often did that, withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Jesus knew that it was necessary to pray. If he needed to pray, we sure enough need to pray. We need to pray constantly. It's hard to imagine uh, believing in God and believing in prayer and, and going an hour without saying something to God, certainly not going a whole day without talking to God. It's important, by the way, to have that daily habit of prayer where, you know, morning, noon, night, sometime, this is my time I get alone with God and I talk to him. But it's also important to practice his presence. That is, to realize no matter where I go and no matter what I do, God is with me. And I just need to speak to him as though he's this person who's here all the time. Have a constant conversation with him. I read an interesting little, you know, tidbit three farmers were talking and one farmer says, I believe that the best way to pray is in church with your head bowed and your hands folded. The second guy said, well, I believe the best way to pray is out in the open with your arms lifted up in praise to God. And the third guy says, well, that sounds good. But he said, the best prayer I ever prayed was hanging upside down in a well. And, you know, that's the best prayer you're going to pray is when you realize I'm dependent on God. Peter probably never prayed a more sincere prayer than when he was walking on the water, took his eyes off Jesus, started to sink, and said, Lord, save me. The key to effective praying is dependence, is depending on God. Now we're just saying a few words, now I lay me down to sleep, or God bless this food or something of that nature. But when we know that we absolutely depend on God, when we, when we make prayer a priority in our lives, when we pray about everything, we're saying, God, only you can do it. I can't do it. God, I depend completely on you. So prayer is number one. Here's a second one. Five things you can do to strengthen your spiritual life. Second is spend time daily in God's word. We're talking about the Bible. The Bible is the written word of God for us. And, and we've talked around here about a lot of ways you can spend time in God's word. Specifically, there are six of them. We kind of put a hand up and you want to get a grasp on God's word. But the first is to hear it like you're doing right now and listening to an iPod or a recording of some kind. Read it. Uh, not necessarily trying to understand everything, but just reading it. You're not going to understand everything you read in the Bible. It's God's word. There is no bottom to everything you can understand. Study it, trying to understand it. Memorize it. Oh, I can't do that. I can't memorize. Yes, you can. You just don't try. But if you, if you tried, you find a verse of scripture that has great meaning to you. Commit that to memory. God can use it in your life. Meditate. That just means 
thinking about it. Talking to God about it. I've got this verse in my mind. I'm reading this verse over and over again. God, how can I apply this to my life? What does this mean to me? You know, as we think about it, meditate on that. God speaks to us and then apply it to your life. Do it. You know, it doesn't do any good to study God's word if you don't do it somewhere along the line. David, uh, the psalmist, was speaking about a righteous man when he said this in Psalm 37, 31. The law of God is in his heart. This righteous person, the law of God is in his heart and none of his steps shall slide. He is on a firm foundation. This past uh, June, Gene and I were in Daytona Beach uh, for a meeting, about a couple thousand other Christians there at the same time we were meeting together. And the morning we left, the hotel was right on the beach. So we decided to go take a walk on the beach, and we did, and it was nice. And we came back in, and we went to the coffee shop. We had some breakfast, and as we walked out of the coffee shop, I had my big coffee. She had her big coffee. She had her flip-flops on, and there was a little sand on the bottom of her flip-flops, and there was a little sand on the floor, and it was a particularly slippery spot. I can see it now. I'm right behind her, and I saw her feet like that, slip. Next thing I know, hit her right out there. That big coffee splattered all over the place. People gathered around us. There's an open air resident, uh, a restaurant right there. Hotel security is involved, you know, but I can just remember her feet went like that and, and, and I was powerless. I couldn't do anything to help her and boom, she was gone. You know what it's like, don't you? When you, it, it's scary when you lose your footing and it's gone. Well, the righteous man, the one who has the law of God in his heart, none of his step, that's not going to happen in a spiritual sense. There's a strong connection between Bible reading and right living. When you read with an open heart and mind, God's word comes alive and speaks to you. It comforts you when you're down and out. It challenges you to love God and to love others. It reminds you to pray. It encourages you to live the right kind of life. There's also a connection between Bible reading and effective life management, which is what we're talking about. Help you remain focused on and dependent on God. It helps keep your feet on solid ground. And remember this, when you read the Bible, God will speak to you about you. You know, it's not just about everybody else. But all of a sudden, you're reading the Bible and God is talking directly to you and, and, and doing things in your life. There's a guy by the name of Joshua. He followed Moses. You know, Moses led God's children out of Israel. And Moses wrote down the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses wrote them down. And Joshua had that. And so God says this to Joshua in Joshua 1.8. When Joshua's taken over, he says, the book of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the way we would call them today, what weren't known by those names then. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. All right, you, you, you read it, you study it, you meditate on it. You shall meditate it in it day and night. Why? That you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. So you'll do the right thing. You stay in God's word so you'll do the right thing for then you will make your way prosperous. That doesn't mean you're going to make a lot of money. It means you're going, to, you're going to prosper in whatever you do and you will have good success. When you read God's word, say, Lord, speak to me and give me the wisdom to follow you. And God's word will do that. Number three, pray, spend time daily in God's word, go to church. Sounds self-serving. You know, you want everybody to come to church. I do, but it's not all about me. 
It's about you. I want good things to happen in your life. The Lord established churches as places for Christians to assemble together to help each other, to minister to the unchurched, and to worship him. In fact, the word translated church in the New Testament means assembly. It means an assembly of people. And when I say attend church, I'm talking about all the ways we assemble. I'm talking about this service. I'm talking about Bible study that we have at 9 o'clock and Bible study that we have at 6.30. I'm talking about the, the, the group meetings we have on Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights in homes during the week. I, I'm talking about men's uh, breakfast. I'm talking about Thursday morning when the guys gather and, and, and pray together at Starbucks. I'm talking about fall fest. I'm talking about whenever you get together with your church, you are encouraging and uplifting each other. You know these verses. We've read them a couple of times in this series, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider one another. Let's focus on each other. Let's pay attention to each other so that we know what's going on in the other person's life. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Verse 25 says, not forsaking, not staying away uh, from the assembly, uh, in, uh, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Early Christians knew that they needed to be a part of a church and they needed to get together. They were under constant attack. Churches prayed for each other. They gave financial aid to each other. They, they called each other into accountability uh, when they were drifting from God. And it's important, you know, there's a lot of great parachurch organizations uh, like Waterfront Rescue Mission and those kinds of, of organizations in our, uh, uh, and I mentioned that because Davis is an inter integral part of that. A lot of great parachurch organizations, but they can never replace being an active part of a local New Testament church. Unfortunately, many Christians today just kind of drift from church to church or get their spiritual food from the television or the internet. And by the way, you can hear some good stuff on television and on the internet, some really good stuff. You can hear some great sermons uh, preached and Bible lessons taught. You can, you can go to the best men and women in the country, in the world, uh, television and internet, but you can't get involved uh, with, a, with a company of believers on the internet. You can't get involved in serving others on the internet. Uh, you can have friends, but probably those Christian friends don't call you into accountability. You can't have a pastor. Uh, uh, you might hear great sermons, better sermons, than you can hear at church, but you don't have a pastor uh, to watch over you and protect you. At Milestone, we see church membership as a commitment that's good for both the individual and the church. We go over that in our 101. We have a class, Impact 101. Uh, talks about those kinds of things. But think about this. Being an active and committed church member, a member of a church can keep you accountable. That's one of the things we should do for each other. We don't, not pointing your finger in people's faces, that's, that's not a good thing to do. But in love, putting your arm around somebody and saying, hey, let me help you get back where you should be. Being an active and committed member of a church can keep you accountable and enable you to remain dependent upon God for his leadership in your life. Pray, spend time in God's word, attend church, and there's money. Fourth is tithe, give. We talked about this last week, how to act your wage. Honor God with everything you have. 100%, everything you have belongs to God, so honor him with it. You could buy a car, 
and honor God. You can buy a house and honor God. You can go on vacation and honor God. But be sure that your life is about him and not about your stuff. Give the first portion, 10% of your increase back to God through his church. The result is that God will bless and multiply your financial efforts. Last week, I gave you three reasons to tithe. Number one, show gratitude for the past. Lord, you've given me everything I have, and I'm going to return a portion of that to you. Number two, to help keep our priorities straight for today. And uh, that, that's one of the main reasons we give, is to put God first. I gave you Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 and 23, which says, you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. I don't have a field, and near, neither do you that produces literal grain, but I got a job that produces money. Why am I going to do that? Verse 23 says that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always, or the New Living Translation says doing this will teach you always to fear the Lord your God. That's one of the things that God laid down in Scripture, a way that we learn to follow him is by giving back to him. So number one, to show gratitude for the past. Number two, to keep our priorities straight today. Number three, to demonstrate our faith for tomorrow. When I give to God, uh, I say, look, I might feel good if I put this money in a savings account or whatever, but you're the one that can take care of me. Saving is important, but giving is more important. Did you know the number one competitor uh, with putting God first in this life is not devil? It's stuff. It's money. That's why Jesus said this in Luke 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters. He's talking to his guys. Where either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is a word that's just taken out of the language of the New Testament, and it got stuck in the English language. Other translations translate the word money or wealth. He got, Jesus didn't say you can't serve God and Satan. Jesus said you can't serve God and stuff. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and material things. For that reason, how we manage our money and our material possessions is the most obvious outward measure of our spirituality. You can't say, I love God, but I don't give. Don't believe it. You can't say, I worship God, but I don't give. Mm -mm, no. Can't say, I, I, I put God first and don't give. No, no that, this doesn't work. When you don't give uh, back to God, what you're saying is, I trust in me rather than trusting in God. For that reason, by the way, there's a commitment sheet in your bulletin today. And you don't have to put your name on that. I'll tell you why I like for you to fill it out a little bit later. One of the verses on that sheet is Malachi 3.10. Yes, I know this was under the law of Moses. Uh, Gene and I, by the way, in our, our nightly readings together, read the book of Malachi last night or two, and, or, or the first half of it. And we came upon this verse. And basically, uh, the Israelites, you know, where they'd rebuilt the temple. You know, they'd been in captivity. They're back. They rebuilt the temple. But they, they weren't giving God what they should be giving him. And God says, you're cheating me or you're stealing from me by not giving me everything you should be giving. And so Malachi 3.10 says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. What well, was the storehouse? It was a temple. They actually had rooms where they stored up all the grain and the, you know, the, the, the stuff that the people brought in. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. Put me to the test here, God says. 
If you really believe that I, uh, die, that I am your Savior, if you really believe I can take care of you, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Put me to the test. Try me, God says. See if it'll work. Now, the current storehouse, I believe the teaching of the New Testament, for God's tithe, the first part, is the church where you serve God or hold membership. If you're not a member here, I'm not trying to get any money out of you. Come as often as you like and uh, see what you think. But to Milestone Church family, 1 Corinthians 16, 1, Paul said this, now concerning the collection for the saints, special offering they were taking, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. I told this group of churches to do this. You have to do the same thing. Here's what I'm telling you to do. Number two, on the first day of the week, that's Sunday when the church comes together. On the first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. That is based on your income. As he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. New International Version reads like this. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Verse 2, on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Now, Paul never used the word tithe. He just said, in your heart, you decide what you're going to give to God. He talked a lot about money, and he talked about giving, and he said giving should be systematic it should be, that is, regular. It should be proportional to your income, and it should be on the first day of the week when the church comes together. Uh, I say tithing, and I'll tell you why. Because tithing, or 10%, was a principle before the law of Moses. From the very beginning of time, tithing was a principle. It was a principle under the law of Moses. And while nowhere in the New Testament does it say, thou shalt not tithe, I will say this, that the the principle of proportional giving is clearly taught in the New Testament. And if it's not based on 10%, it's probably based on more. You know, would we give less than people under law would give? No, we, we should give more. Now, tithing will not get you out of financial difficulty if you're in financial difficulty. There are other principles, but it's an important part of that. Because tithing says, God, I trust you. And God will bless you if you give. Pray, spend time daily in God's word, attend church, tithe. And, and one more thing, very quickly. Demonstrate your faith. Share your faith. Serve through your faith. Minister to others through your faith. There are numerous ways that we demonstrate our faith. We remember that Jesus said this in John 13, 35, by this. Here's the way that you're, you're going to... That people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And of course, other places, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Second, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Uh, so apply, let people see the faith that you have in God. And, and I'll just say one of those things includes sharing your faith with others. We call that witnessing sometimes that's important. I read a, you know, we, we have some crazy ideas about what this thing is all about. I read this story years ago about this guy who was driving down the road and God spoke to him 
And God said, go preach at the Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty was a grocery store. I've never heard of a grocery store where he was. He said it was about 9.30 at night, so I went to the Humpty Dumpty, and I jumped up on one of the counters, and I said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and you people don't care. And then God told me to split, and I did, <laughs> you know, I guess before the police showed up. And so, so for some reason, we get the idea that that's what telling other people about Jesus is about, but, but it isn't. Uh, the most effective way to share your faith with non-believers is to live a life of service and sacrifice in front of them. Uh, and then when you tell them something, they know whether or not you're telling the truth. If your neighbors see you kick your dog every day, if the people that you work with see you shirk your responsibilities every day, they're probably not going to believe what you had to say. But if they see in you a person that loves others and cares about others and sacrifices about others, and they see something different in your life, and you tell them about that, it makes a difference. One time Jesus healed a man, John chapter 9. He healed a guy who had been blind. And the, the, the Jewish leaders were, uh, were trying to show that, that Jesus was a sinner, that he was a bad guy. And so they called this guy in, and, and they said, that, what, what happened to you? Tell us about it. that guy is a sinner. And here's what this guy said in John 9, 25. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. Quiet. Nobody could argue with it, right? That's what happens. You live for God. God does something in your life. You tell somebody else, this is what God did for my life. They can do everything they can to shoot you down. It's not your job to prove them wrong about everything. You can't. Too much stuff. But you can say, this is what God did in my life. As followers of Christ, we have to remember that my life is not about me and it's not about my comfort. It's about serving God and serving others. And that usually is, costs time and money and convenience. Now, the fundamental habits of the Christian life are prayer, Bible study, church attendance, tithing, and sharing your faith. Everybody knew that probably already. Uh, Doing each one well requires that we depend on God each step of the way. The more we do them, the closer we are to God. The less we do them, the farther we get away from God. It's not complicated. As I say, it's not rocket science or brain surgery that we're talking about here. Pretty simple stuff. Winning teams always excel at the fundamentals. In the same way, excelling at the fundamentals of the Christian life will result in an effective life a life that is completely dependent on God, a life of joy and peace and contentment and all, and all those other good things that you're looking for. Now, in your bulletin, I'm asking you as a member, if you're a member of the Milestone Baptist Church, to make a commitment in all these areas today, but I specifically mentioned the giving part because I said that's the, that's the most outward showing of what you do. Now, here's what your commitment sheet says, and you can fill that out, put it in the offering plate today, or you can take it home with you and think about it, but it says this. Next slide. Because I don't have it on here. Here we go. <laughs> I don't have it. No, here. Milestone Baptist Church, the trust test. Do you trust God or not? Tithing is not an issue of money, but of trust. So it costs me some money. Yes, it does, but it's all about trust. God knows that it's extremely difficult for us to turn our finances over to him. God knows that. It's tough. Therefore, he says, next slide, Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe. 
into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. And in Philippians 4.19, the apostle Paul wrote to people that were giving, by the way, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. If you are a giver, God meets your needs. Next slide. God said it. Can I trust God to keep his promises? More importantly, can God trust me to obey him? Next. Here's my commitment. Desiring to, number one, show my gratitude for the fact that God gave me my skills, my job, my opportunities, provides all my needs, these people who love me, all this stuff comes from God. Desiring to keep my priorities straight every day by acknowledging God as the owner of all things. And number three, desiring to demonstrate my faith that he will take care of me tomorrow. Here's my commitment. I take this step of faith by committing at least the first 10% of my income through the Lord to the Milestone Baptist Church, God's storehouse for me, if you're a member here. I said, I'm not trying to get anything out of you if you're not. Come all you want. You can check, I'll begin tithing. I already tithe, I already tithe, and I commit to giving more than 10%. No name, you don't put a name on that because this is not a promise to the church, okay? You're not promising me, and you're not promising the Milestone Baptist Church. We're not gonna budget based on this. We're not gonna dun you. Only God knows that you filled it out. Why do I want you to do that? Because when you write something down, it clarifies it. It reminds you, it's hard to forget. I said I was going to do this. And so you, you, you do or, or you don't. You know, I mean, that's up to you. I won't know who does and I won't know who doesn't. And furthermore, I don't even want to know most of the time. But I encourage you to do that. Or if you want to change tithing to giving, feel free to do that. But I encourage you to fill that out, stick it in the offering plate, take it home with you, put it in next week, whatever you want to do. But I encourage you to think about the commitment that you need to make to Christ. Let's pray. Father, you're here with us. And I think most of us, most of us in this room would say, I believe that God takes care of me. I believe that God supplies all my needs. Please give us the grace to live our lives that way, to live as though we believe that you're in control and that you're the one that provides for us. There's scary times involved in that, but that's what faith's about. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand, please.